Thank you, Pastor Matt. Appreciate that. Uh, I want to add the welcome. Welcome, everyone. My name is Kurt Morrill. I'm the lead pastor here at Simi Covenant, and I am glad to have you here with us this morning. Uh, for some people, it's a bigger sacrifice to come on a big football day. Other people, not so much. Some people are happy to think about something else and are, would rather not think about it. <laughs> uh, we are in a five-week sermon series uh, called Meet the Church. Here, oops, you got me. There you go. Um, the first week we talked about the leader of the church, who is the Lord himself. The la- and then last week we talked about the aim of the church, and we said that, that the church is to aim to be a gathering place for the nations to revel in God. And this week we are going to be talking about the people of the church. Who are we? As I said last week, the church is not like a club where we are gathered around a common interest or goal. It's more than that. The the church has been called into existence by the work of the Spirit of God around a common Savior. The burning center, then, of the church must always be God, the Father who is working out His purposes in history, and the Son who gives Himself to cleanse a people, and the Spirit at work to empower and direct us. One of the most common images for Christianity is a cross. And it is fitting because the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus remain the seminal event, not only of our Christian faith, but of all history. And because of that, when we think, who are the people of the church, we have to say, we are people of the cross. Uh, The writer of the book of Hebrews, if you have a Bible, you can open up your your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of the book of Hebrews is going to communicate one aspect of this, of us being... uh, My clicker's not working. Can you, you can advance the slide. Um, Thank you. Uh, He's going to communicate one aspect of us being people of the cross here in Hebrews 10, 14, where he says, for by one sacrifice... He, meaning Christ, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy, meaning us. Now, the word cross is not found in this passage, and we're going to get to that. But the people of the church are to be people of the cross. And this morning, we're going to talk about what is the sacrifice that is offered at the cross? What is its power And what are some of the practical implications for our ongoing life together? What is the sacrifice? What is its power? And what are some of the implications for us? So first, let's talk about the sacrifice. Now, we're only looking at one sentence in a larger development that the writer of Hebrews has in his argument. And I'll admit, it's going to be a little bit difficult for us to enter into some of the nuance of all that's going on here. The the writer of the book of Hebrews is making a much larger case that what we find in the Old Testament is all of those things point to a greater reality in Christ Jesus. So in the book of Hebrews, the writer says, for example, that Jesus is superior to angels. And Jesus is superior to Moses. That in Christ we get a true Sabbath rest. That Christ is the perfect high priest. 
And, and the book was written to a primarily Jewish audience who would have a lot, uh, understood a lot of the images intuitively that were being spoken of. A lot like talking to a group of Americans, say, about Abraham Lincoln or about the Super Bowl. Th these are images. I'm sorry, it's going to end at some point. I'm sorry. <laughs> By tomorrow, it'll all be over. Uh, but if I say log cabin to you, you know something, that it, it's an image that I don't have to say the whole thing. You know Abraham Lincoln uh, because we have some history. These I ideas and images have power for the listeners who understand more about the context. You understand American history, historical context. Same for these Jewish hearers in the book of Hebrews. And so the author of the book of Hebrews begins to get into some of the intricacies of the sacrifice. And the sacrifice that was supposed to happen ongoing in the temple. At the temple, the high priest would enter into this most sacred area called the most holy place. And he would only do that after they had sacrificed animals to give to God in worship and to provide for their sin, provide for his own sin. And there, that high priest, and only once a year, would make a special sacrifice for the sins of the people in the most holy place. And this was something that was repeated year after year, as was required by God's law. But the writer of the book of Hebrews says that those things were only a shadow of the real thing that was going to come, which was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Maybe you've had a hard time in the past understanding why would God ask for there to be sacrifices in the Old Testament? And the idea was, in part, to begin to teach our hearts to understand the real thing that was going to come, which was Christ's death on the cross. It's pointing toward something for us to understand. So, in this big argument that, that the writer is getting to, in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says that Christ, he was not only the priest who was offering the sacrifice, he wasn't only the temple where it was going to be offered, but he was the sacrifice itself. And it's, it's amazingly rich stuff. We could preach a whole sermon on that. Maybe uh, soon we'll be able to talk about the book of Hebrews. It's amazing. But this is what we're getting at. The sacrifice on the cross has real power. And, and I want for us to home in a bit more on the, the force of the argument that culminates in verse 14. The, the writer says that by one sacrifice, he, meaning Christ, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy, meaning us. That is a terrifically powerful action. Because instead of it needing to be something that gets repeated year after year over and over, it's by one sacrifice. All right, there are two parts of that. First, the sa this sacrifice is completely sufficient. And it is also continuously sufficient. It's completely sufficient and continuously sufficient. Uh, so completely sufficient, what I'm saying is that it says that by this one sacrifice, he has made us perfect. Perfect here doesn't mean that we never make mistakes, obviously. Get to know me, you will know. Kurt Morrill is certainly far from it. And I think that if, you, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll be able to say that about ourselves as well. The writer uses this term here and elsewhere in the book actually to talk about us being complete. Uh, it's closer to the idea, uh, Jewish idea of shalom, this completeness and wholeness. We are now 
perfect in the idea of being whole. And that means that this salvation is of such a quality that it will never need to be renewed. It will never need to be added to. Nothing more will ever need to be done to deliver God's people from sin and bring them into God's presence. So previously the high priest had to provide cleansing for his own sin in order to enter the holy place and to offer for the other people's sin. So the other sacrifices prepared this high priest to come into the presence of God and do what he needed to do there. The system of sacrifices that was there, that God had instituted these in the Old Testament, now pointed toward this perfect sacrifice that would only need to be done one time. But here we see that this, by this one sacrifice, he has now suited us for relationship with the Father. And that's why biblical writers will say we can come into the presence of God. It's, it's the image of each one of us now being able to go into that most holy place. It's amazing. And that one time that Christ offered was so completely sufficient. It was with such power that it was able to cleanse his people from the pollution of sin. We can have confidence to enter the most holy place. It's amazing. Uh, I, I get occasional emails from a mosque in Orange County. It's a long story, okay? Um, and an email that I got uh, once, it uh, caught my attention in particular. <clears throat> and basically, in this email, the imam, who's the leader of the, the Muslim community, he was encouraging people to uh, make sure that they did a certain number of prayers that week and that month um, so that they would basically get enough points in order to please God. And it was very clear, hey, guys, make sure you do it. You need your points. And um, basically, he, he said, you need to get up to a certain level so that you can be, he didn't say it, but acceptable to God. And the whole system in Islam, in, in a way, I'll tell you, it's, it's pretty logical in a way. Hey, here are the things you need to do. Do it and trust in God. Islam, though, is not the only religion that uh, approaches sin in this way. Uh, one author, I think I have the quote for this. Is there a quote from this author that says, most religions involve some kind of human doing for God, sacrificing something to win the favor Win favor with the Almighty. So we're the ones providing this. At the heart of Christianity stands the core truth that God has done something for us through the sacrifice of his son that we could never do for ourselves. He has taken our sins out of the way, forgiven us completely, and relates to us intimately and eternally. Love that. Intimately and eternally. So we naturally drift toward this kind of human doing for God. We, we just, it's kind of the way that we all go. And so part of us being a part of a church community, something that's good for our hearts, is that it helps us to recenter and get reconnected to this idea that we have to have a God-centered view of worship, where God's the one doing it. I'm not trying to reach up to God, but that God himself has come and reached down to me. And that's something that we can celebrate together. Christ's sacrifice was so completely sufficient that he says also that that sacrifice made us perfect forever. 
So it is so exhaustive, so thorough that it's never going to run out. I've got another slide. <coughs> uh, this, if you don't know it, is our sun. Uh, I don't know if you saw the news this week, but um, go ahead and go to the next one. They took, uh, supposedly, it's the most high-resolution photo ever taken of the sun. Uh, and I think it's, it's really amazing uh, when you get in very close. And astronomers tell us that one day, the fuel of the sun is going to run out, this beautiful sun. Don't worry, it's billions of years from now. I don't think you're going to be around for it. But I want to tell you, the sun keeps burning every day, right? But the sacrifice of Christ is of such cosmic proportions that it will never diminish and it will never run out. It's of such cosmic proportions that it's never going to diminish or run out. We can trust in it even more than the sun. The second part of our verse says, so that is, that is it is completely sufficient. It's completely sufficient. The second part of our verse, it says, those who are being made holy. Isn't that interesting? Holy, but those who are being made holy. We're talking about being continuously sufficient now, continually. So this doesn't need, this means, sorry, to say that we are, those who are being made holy does not mean that we need to be made holy again or that we are going to eventually become morally perfect people. What it means is that the salvation that Christ accomplished is continually sufficient. To say it a different way, it simply means that if Christ is the one who makes us holy, we as Christians need to stay continually connected to the grace of Christ. So we're, we're people who are shaped by grace. And because of that, we are able to continuously receive the necessary forgiveness and live a life of faithful obedience. We remain in relationship with God and also with other people who have also been forgiven, perfected by Christ. Our holiness, which is something that we end up expressing then in our obedience and faithfulness, is totally dependent on us staying connected with our Savior. That's why we read in passages, I think I have this one up there too, like 2 Timothy 1.19, which says, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Are you seeing some of those same themes that I'm talking about here? We're saved completely, but also called to be holy. And that is only because we stay in relationship with, with God. And, and most of the New Testament letters actually start this way. If you, if you were to read through just kind of the first couple of lines of every New Testament letter, you're going to see that the author calls God's people holy a lot. The word for that is saint. You guys are actually saints. So, for example, Ephesians 1.1 begins, it says, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. That's how Ephesians starts out. So they are already holy, starting out his letter. But then Paul, in that same letter, he's going to continue on, and he sees no problem then with challenging these same people to do away with their former self. And the word that he uses, he says, clothe yourself with Christ. So he says, don't steal anymore. Get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of your sexual immorality. Get rid of the greed that is in you. And, and there's, there's no contradiction then between him saying, you are holy, and yet 
to call us to live lives that exhibit holiness. Author Vaughn Roberts writes, whatever our temptation, we must take decisive action to resist it. We take decisive action because we've been made holy and we want to live our lives in conformity with who we are in God. Staying connected with our Savior, Spirit's power continuously sufficient in us and for us. So we have to persevere in fighting against that sin. If Christ's sacrifice was so completely and so continuously sufficient, then there are some practical implications for us. First, I hope it's going to shape our opinion of ourselves. For all the good news that we've been mentioning, embedded in that is a little bit of bad news, isn't there? Right? The bad news is that you and I are actually sinful and in need of a Savior. <laughs> I, actually need a sa- I actually need a Savior. And, and we're, we're, I'm not going to be able to get out of the way of facing up with how inadequate I am or was to be able to come and come to God. No one is going to be enough. When I've talked with my Muslim friends, many times they'll tell me, you know what, our life is like a balance. This is how they explain it to me. Our life is like a balance, and if you have more good deeds than bad deeds, then you're going to be okay. But if you have more bad deeds, more bad days than good days, you're not going to be fine. Oh, but, you know, God's gracious. He counts our good deeds for more, and there's a whole complicated system in there. But I think that the problem is, is that far too often, me, us, we have kind of a Muslim view about sin and holiness rather than a Christian one. You see, the high priest could not enter into the holy place to meet God until there had been purification to cover his own sin. And presumably, this guy was as good as any perfect Muslim person in the world. He did his prayers. He did what he was supposed to do. He was at least trying, hopefully, to be a good person. But in the law, in the Old Testament, is already built in to acknowledge that there is a streak of darkness even in the high priest. And that's why the Old Testament law said he had to purify himself. But Christ's sacrifice is completely and continuously sufficient. So what I'm saying is this, is that we, the people of the church, are both amazingly holy and still pretty broken. And we're not going to grow out of our basic bent toward sin, and we're never going to grow out of God's grace, though, either. And it's precisely because the people of the church admit that we are both holy and broken, that when we think, who are we? Who are the people of the church? We have to say we are people of the cross. Because the cross of Christ proclaims both the amazing depths of depravity in the human soul and the depths of love of a God who is willing to save us all the way down to the bottom. When we talked last week about when we come face to face with Christ, we will get to rest from the struggle that we have with sin and the struggle we have with living in a sinful world. But until then, I want to say, we refuse to be 
surprised when we discover that the people around us are sinful. We refuse to be surprised when we discover that people around us are sinful. Our neighbors, our spouse, our friends, our kids, our parents, ourselves. And that leads me to my second point, and that is of the last point, um, second half of that, is that it's going to shape my opinion of the people around me. What we believe about this needs to shape how I view people around me. If we're no longer surprised to find out that people are sinful and broken, then the miracle of the church is that God has chosen to work through us. Isn't that amazing? We never have to be perfect. That's not what he had planned. I think God knew that it was going to be messy. But he chose to work through us, through, through us. We are a mixed bag at best, but if we're going to have a gospel-centered vision for other people, we have to believe that God is also working through us. I want to have the same vision as that we see in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. It means that I believe Christ's death was completely and continuously sufficient, so much so that my greatest prayer for the person next to me must always be that they will trust in the sufficiency of that sacrifice. More than often, I just kind of complain about them. But that's not seeing God's people as people of the cross. Um, when, my, uh, when we were going to get married, Karen and I, we had, uh, uh, I had to get together with a bunch of my friends, traditionally called a bachelor party. And um, it was not a very rowdy affair. I think there was some bowling involved and stuff like that. It was, um, but there was a moment where um, some of my friends, they said, hey, you know what? We're all gathered here together. We want to pray for Kurt. But first, let's tell some stories about him. This would be really great. So my friends, they were telling some stories about me, and kind of like the theme of my friend, these are my friends in college, the theme of their stories was like, wow, Kurt's a great guy. That was kind of how it went. I was like, I was very touched. It was so heartwarming. I have such great friends. They see great things about me. And my brothers were there. I have three brothers. <laughs> and they sat there for a little while. My brother Ross still loves to tell this story. He says, all right, that's great. Um, Kurt's our oldest brother, and we want to tell you another side of the story. He's a terrible person. Do you know what he did to us? Let us recount the ways that Kurt is terrible. And they tried to balance it out, basically, for what happened. And um, what's terrible, though, is that when I heard that, what do you think I thought? Uh, yeah, oh, I'm found out a little bit. But also I thought, well, that's not who I am now, right? That's, that's, not, that's not me. I'm not quite, well, I, I wanted to defend myself. I wanted to fight back against that. But really, they weren't even telling how bad it was. <laughs> and you know what? And they can't even see my heart. They, they can't see all the things that I still want to do when I'm driving. And <laughs> Lord, forgive me. Um, they, uh, they can't, you know, we, none of us wants to show who we are, really, to the person next to us. And that's why we've got to pray harder for the people next to us 
We're all fighting a battle. But something I, I should have been able to say, agree with them, right? Because that is the story of us. We are both. Of all people, Christians should be willing to say that we're sinful. And we are more deeply, complexly sinful than we ever could even imagine. We are sinful individually and corporately, intellectually, socially, emotionally, spiritually, physically, whatever else you can think of. Now, when the faults in our character are acknowledged or revealed, whether by action or somebody else saying it, how should we react? Because for us to resist the diagnosis of sinfulness means that in some way we don't need so big a savior. If I'm like, I'm not that sinful, it means I don't need that big of a savior actually. We're welcoming a small savior rather than who he is. So forgive us, Lord, for wanting to avoid being sinful, be seen as sinful. It's, just, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, we're Christians. We acknowledge that. But the good news is, as we've been saying, Christ's sacrifice is powerful, and this has implications in all areas of our life. But here on Communion Sunday as well, we're going to go directly now into a time of communion. In the Covenant Church, we practice an open communion, uh, which means that if you desire to connect yourself with this Savior God and to put your trust in Him, if you mourn your sins and you desire a complete and continuous saving power, you are welcome to come and participate with us in this celebration. I wonder if you've ever thought to yourself, I'm not sure if I should take communion this Sunday because of what I did this week. We have perhaps lingering habits that do suck spiritual vitality out of our lives. And when we have that, it can cause a crisis of faith for us and maybe think, oh, gosh, am I really a Christian? And instead, we need to ask a couple other questions. Are you committed to relationship with God through the work of Christ Jesus, depending on him and his sacrifice alone for your forgiveness? Because we know that this sacrifice was completely sufficient, and we know that it is still continually, continuously sufficient for us today. So when I take the bread and I drink the juice, I'm not saying that I have been good enough this week to deserve to. Rather, I am proclaiming the gospel. But there's nothing I can do to earn my right to come into God's presence. But I depend on him entirely. I depend on Christ's sacrifice. His body given for me and his blood shed for me. And I, I'm able to come to him on that basis alone. As we come to take the Lord's Supper, we can ask ourselves the question, where, is there, are there areas of sin in my life that are causing me to doubt my salvation. And to that, we want to say, that struggle is evidence that the Spirit is working in you. If you didn't struggle, the, the biggest danger actually isn't that we find sin, it's that we don't really care anymore. Let's let our consciences be struck by this. You can go ahead and lead us. As we come to communion, 
We invite you to come to this sacred table, not because you must, but because you may. You come to testify, not that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and pray for the Spirit. It says in the scriptures, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're proclaiming his sacrifice. Servers, we want to ask you to come up. Uh, I will tell you, over the next uh, few months, we are going to be trying a few different ways of uh, serving communion and taking the Lord's Supper together. This month, we're going to be doing it by dipping a gluten-free cracker into the juice. I would ask that you re refrain from putting your fingers in the juice. And these cracker slices are, are big on purpose, so you can do that. You don't need to break it to show your humility. Just go ahead and take a full <laughs> cracker is fine. Let's pray as we receive communion this morning. Father God, we come to you. We thank you for your work. We appreciate your sacrifice, Lord, and we come before you and we offer our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to you. God, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit on these gifts and that they may be the sacrament of the body of Christ and the blood of the new covenant. May they unite us to your Son in death and resurrection, that we would be sanctified through the Holy Spirit, and that in the fullness of time, we would put all things under you, that you would bring us to that heavenly feast where with all your saints we will be gathered in glory everlasting through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.